Welcome to How to Stop Climate Change. I'm your host, David Butler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Russell, and my producer and daughter, Keaton Butler. Normally, each episode of How to Stop Climate Change features a guest with an interesting story about what they're doing to fight climate change and their inspiration for fighting instead of giving up. Today, we're going to try something different. Matt and David are going to discuss some of the climate stories in the news, and then they're going to dive in and provide some background on one of them. Today's focus is Exxon's plan to continue pumping more and more carbon into the atmosphere, risking life as we know it, and also their existence as a company in the pursuit of short-term profits. Hey, Matt, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you very much. We're on our way back into a lockdown here, but apart from that, everybody is fit, healthy, and happy. How are things back your way? Well, they're pretty good for me. Actually, I, I feel pretty lucky I'm able to work from home, and Kentucky has done pretty well in the pandemic. Our governor has has done a good job of handling it, unlike some of our other leaders. But infection rates are going back up, you know, and I I still don't think people are taking it seriously enough. And boy, there are a lot of crazy things going on in the U.S. right at the moment. Watching from a distance, one of the things we're seeing from the outside is the fires on the west coast of the U.S., up through California and Oregon. And um, there's no doubt climate change is playing a role in that. But from your side, inside the U.S., are you seeing, is it, is it part of the climate debate or is it a forest management issue or is it even getting the sort of coverage locally that we're seeing from the outside? Well, for a while, you know, it was getting tons of coverage. I think that a lot of the mainstream media was starting to, you know, feature the climate change effect pretty heavily in their stories and uh, climate change even made it into the headlines. Governor Newsom and other officials in California had a meeting with Trump and they were, you know, pushing him to admit that it was climate change and do something about climate change. But he just keeps saying over and over, oh, it's forest management. You know, we have like all, all this dead wood and litter on the ground. And, you know, there probably does need to be some focus on forest management. You know, maybe we've prevented too many wildfires in the past, but still, this is climate change. Here it is. Yeah, I think um, even from the outside looking in, it's clear that you've got a longer dry season, which means you've got more flammable tinder available when something like this goes up, leading to bigger, more intense fires. I agree with you. Like, there's no getting away from forest management being a critical element to this. Forest fires were happening before climate change and will happen again afterwards. But the intensity and the scale of these things goes beyond anything we, we've seen before. Um, so it, it was disappointing from the outside to watch two groups basically accuse the other of being at fault without any sense of a strategy going forward to either deal with the management or address the climate change. Yeah. At least it forced it into a more mainstream discussion. You know, maybe it's a step in the right direction, but wow, what a price to pay for that. Yeah, that, that's a nice point in that all the coverage on, in, on this side of the Atlantic talked about climate change. But you're right, I was watching the metrics for how often it was mentioned in news coverage, and it was definitely a step up. Wasn't happening in any or even most of the articles for that matter, but at least climate change is becoming part of the discussion. But you're right, big price to pay for something like that. Yeah. Is there any reference to climate or happening with the presidential debates? 
Well, yeah, actually, a lot of the climate activists were really mad that there wasn't going to be a climate change question on the agenda for the first presidential debate. And then, of course, Chris Matthews just surprisingly asked one. I don't know that the uh, discussion around it was very good, but it, it got in there. Were you taken aback by Biden moving away from the Green New Deal? And are you feeling good about what he's proposing in its place? Or how is that being reacted to? Well, I think, you know, he has his own platform and uh, Trump is trying to paint him as like a puppet for progressives, you know, that, you know, he's just the front man and it's really going to be like the farther left wing of the Democratic Party that's going to be running things. And Trump and McConnell both just love to hammer away on the Green New Deal, and they'll make up almost anything about it. It's actually a pretty simple resolution. But I think Biden's plan is pretty aggressive, you know, and it's a thousand times better than whatever Trump's going to do if he gets back in the White House, or I mean, if he stays in the White House, you know, he's got no climate plan. He's going to actively try to make sure that we don't do anything about climate change. Yeah, I'm kind of with you actually on this and that I was initially disappointed to see the Green New Deal effectively dead in the water now. A Biden presidency means that it simply isn't happening. But he's proposing, like he's putting $2 trillion into it. He's put some very hard numbers in there about the uh, the grid being carbon free by 2035 and the entire economy being carbon neutral by 2050. And it's all very environmentally and socially focused. So it may not be the Green New Deal in name, but it, it it's a long way there. And it's, to me, struck me as more focused than the broad resolution you get with the Green New Deal as it was. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, it's an actual plan it's a move toward a Green New Deal. It's real and you've got a presidential candidate who's ahead in the polls who is, you know, strongly talking about climate change. It took him a while to get there. It might not be his favorite issue, but he knows that people want him to do something about it. Yeah, I think he's definitely moving the needle. Um, I was reading Inside Climate News recently, an article by uh, Ileana Cohen, and she talked about how the Green New Deal, although it's very much a democratic um, resolution, it had motivated young conservatives, like particularly the likes of the American Conservative Coalition and groups like that, to really make sure that if they weren't going to embrace something like the Green New Deal, and obviously they won't because it's too partisan, they do need an alternative. And there's a real feeling within that younger age cohort within the Republican Party that more serious action needs to be taken, some sort of a policy needs to be put forward, or they are going to simply hemorrhage voters to the Democratic side over time. Yeah, I think that's a real risk for them. But, you know, the party leadership seems to be doubling down on, you know, older voters that are very conservative. I don't know if the party can reinvent itself or not at this point. Yeah, not, not right. Um, I'm more hopeful than you are. Um, like uh, We interviewed Carly Matthews from the American Conserve Conservation Coalition a couple of months ago, and uh, I was very encouraged by having people like that really trying to, to move the debate forward on the conservative side. And as you say, there, there will be a change as those voters, let's say, move out of the voting pool, the elderly, more 
conservative voters over a period of time and those younger voters move through and become more prevalent, assuming they maintain the positions they're talking about now. It's very easy to be idealistic when you're not trying to pay off a mortgage and college fees and that sort of thing. But hopefully the younger Republicans who do see climate change as being a real issue can make it a voting choice for their representatives in the Senate and the House, as well as the president. Yeah, I hope so, because if we want lasting measures, they have to be bipartisan. So you don't have, you know, every time the president switches, he just dumps a bunch of executive orders and then you go back to zero. Yeah, you, you and I have talked about this in different off air and other areas. I, I believe that the, the biggest cohort that needs to be won over at the moment is that Republican side or the conservative side. But it doesn't have to be very many. Like things are so tight in the US at the moment. A few percentage points is all it would need to shift that debate very dramatically the other way. And one you mentioned it earlier on, like the Democratic side are still taking fossil fuel money despite the pledges, although at a massively reduced level than, than the Republican side, but it is still happening. But I think it's going to move away from that. Like Orrell Miller talked about this with us previously, and I do get the sense that the Republican Party are making that shift Fracking aside, I know they've got some some issues there, but are really moving away from the funding of the fossil fuel groups. Am I giving them too much credit there, or do you get a sense of the same sort of thing? I mean, it's it's easy to point fingers at them, and they, you know, for so long they've drugged their feet on doing anything or standing up to Republicans about this. They've certainly been too close with the fossil fuel companies. I think it's I think it's very promising that more and more Democrats are refusing to take that money. It's definitely a step in the right direction. But another thing that I find interesting or hopeful is that as our industries start to evolve, right? Um, you know, the renewable energy industry employs way more people than coal. You know, coal used to have a stranglehold on politics in a lot of ways, and it no longer does. I mean, coal companies are going bankrupt. Coal plants are shutting down. They don't have a say anymore, really. So as oil and gas become less profitable, that same thing will happen, hopefully. Yeah, I think there's a real chance that that is going to happen. I hadn't thought about it quite as cleanly as you've just put it, but Anybody who's paying attention to solid fuels in particular, looking what's happening in the coal industry in the States, can see it is effectively a dead industry at the moment. It's not coming back. And I think the people involved in it, the, the workers can feel very hard done by that the, the jobs that are being lost in the coal industry aren't being actively replaced with, with new technologies yet, whereas a lot of them are in areas where green technologies would be ideal to go back in there. But I think if that trend does move on to the liquid fuels, that could have a very dramatic effect on the future. Are you seeing any evidence of that? Well, I know that those companies are struggling because of the lockdown and the loss of so many types of demand. You know, people aren't driving as much. They're driving more now than than they were, you know, in the early days of the lockdown, of course. But, you know, planes are still mostly grounded. So, so they're suffering, and in a little while we'll talk about some of the suffering that um, Exxon is doing at the moment. Well, actually, because we're on it, let's let's jump into it. So um, Exxon, one of the biggest companies in the world, possibly the biggest company in the U.S. What's changed for it? Yeah, so Exxon has just had a really tough time this year. 
Um, I don't feel sorry for them, but <laughs> seven years ago, they were the biggest company in the U.S., bigger than any other company. And they were kind of, you know, they were almost like their own country. You know, they had uh, kind of their own state department in a way, you know, and they, they were in so many different countries. And in fact, their previous CEO, Rex Tillerson, you know, was uh, Trump's secretary of state for a while. So since 2013, Exxon has lost about 60% of their value. A few weeks ago, they were removed from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You know, this is like there are only 30 companies in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's a pretty big deal to be in that list of the top 30 companies. And they had been on that list for almost a century. So this year, they got taken off of that list. They've lost more than a billion dollars. Um, a lot of that was because of COVID. You know, for a while, oil prices were actually negative because production couldn't be ramped down as fast as demand. So there was literally like nowhere to put the oil that was being produced. And they're facing lots of lawsuits over climate change and their successful efforts to create climate denial. And so, you know, why are they doing so poorly? Well, their competitors a few years ago started to see the writing on the wall and they thought we have to transition to become energy companies and not oil companies. We have to redefine ourselves and we have to start investing more in renewables. They've started to do that. BP and Shell and Total, uh, the French oil company, they've started to try to transition into renewables because they see that that's the future. We can't keep pumping so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and renewables are becoming cheaper so why would you hang on to that last shred of, of being a fossil fuel company? So very recently, Exxon was actually surpassed by NextEra, a wind and solar company, as the biggest U.S. energy company. You know, the stock prices fluctuate, so Exxon is bigger than them again now. But, you know, that's a pretty big indicator that their strategy is, is not good. And their employees have started to get frustrated with them because they're really not doing anything to adapt to climate change. They have said that they're not going to invest in renewables. They don't think that's a big deal. Uh, they don't think the time is right for that. They see, in their opinion, there's going to be a lot of demand for oil in the next several decades. And they've been spending loads of money to develop new oil fields at the same time that their competitors are reducing their investment in exploration and development of new oil fields. One of their employees just leaked their investment plan from 2018. And this is a plan that maps what they're going to try to do to grow the company from 2018 to 2025. Now, of course, they put this together before the pandemic, so they probably have to go back to the drawing board a little bit. But this is a really good glimpse into what Exxon thinks and what they think about the future. So their plan was to invest $210 billion to increase their oil production and develop new fields. And they're very excited about those fields. And this would increase their yearly emissions by 17% per year. So in 2017, their emissions were 122 million metric tons. By 2025, they would be 143 million metric tons under this plan. And that doesn't even count the emissions from actually burning the oil and gas. 
that's just the emissions from extracting it and transporting it and refining it and storing it, all of, all of their core activities. But it's not counting the actual burning of the fuel that they're producing. So if you count that, like their emissions last year were 528 million metric tons. You know, what the heck are they thinking? They're they're totally doubling down. And this was a company that in the 80s and the 70s, they were doing research on climate change. They were kind of leading the way on that. And we talked about that in our previous episode about the history of climate denial and how they wanted to be the Bell Labs of energy. They wanted to be an energy company that was in renewables. Uh, you know, they were they were studying wind and solar and storage, and they had uh, CO two monitors on all of their on all of their tankers. They they knew that climate change was going to be a, a big deal, and they understood that. And then they had a leadership change. They got rid of all of their research and they started just spending loads of money to sow the seeds of climate denial so that they could make money off of oil for, you know, however many extra decades at the expense of everybody in the world. They're clearly still doing that. Yeah, the problem I get with this, and this obviously I'm looking at it from from a distance. I haven't been, haven't been able to go into it as much detail as you have, but they're running out of decades. Like if we take the government commitments that are on the table at the moment and accept them, like every major government in the world at the moment is talking about being carbon neutral in the energy grid, at least by 2035, which means that the business plan, as you've just described it for Exxon is out of date at the very latest by 2035. I think by 2025, it'll already be massively out of date because the grids will be transitioning to these, exactly as you've described it, to the competitors that have these alternate sources of energy that don't rely on a fossil fuel. And at a time when you quite rightly say, I, like we see it here in the UK in particularly, there, there are all of these oil platforms just being mothballed because there's no source, there's no place to go with the oil they are being put in. There's tankers moored off uh, refinery coasts all over the world because there's no capacity to refine the crude. Like they must be sitting in Exxon at the moment, looking at the figures as you've just outlined them, and thought, you know what, this strategy has some fundamental flaws in it, and we need to be able to react or change or otherwise. But from what I'm getting from you, we're not getting any sense of that. It's quite the contrary. They're going, no, we're going to burn at this hard and fast and get as much as we can as quickly as we can while we can. Yeah, I they don't seem to have any remorse and their CEO Darren Woods when uh when this story came out, he he said, "Oh, well, you know, that was just an internal plan and that doesn't count any of our uh efforts to mitigate our emissions." But it actually does. Like the the plan does include things like their carbon capture and other supposed efforts to reduce their emissions. So the emissions would be even higher. Uh, I think they would be 22% higher instead of 17% higher if you didn't take those things into account. But some of those things like their carbon capture efforts are really questionable. Like you, you really have to have to wonder if that's accomplishing anything. And so we'll dive into that on a future episode. Um, I've been reading a lot about those 
tax credits and and how they have that set up and it's it's just kind of crazy yeah i think there's a whole economy there we need to have a look at but exxon have made their decision they know where they're going with it however they decide to justify it are we seeing the same from their competitors like the one i know we talked about before bp have made a big deal about going green are they going green how does that compare to to the likes of exxon well, BP has definitely been the most outspoken about it, and and their CEO, Bernard Looney, said, our new strategy is going to transform BP into a very different company, not overnight, but fast. So that's a pretty aggressive statement from an oil CEO. Uh, they're going to cut their oil and gas investments by 40% by 2030. They're going to reduce overall emissions by 30 to 35 percent and become a net zero carbon emitter by 2050. I mean, that's going to be a difficult transition for them. You know, they don't have the expertise in renewables that a lot of the big renewables companies have. So I'm sure they're going to have to buy up some companies. That That's the tricky part. You know, these guys may have waited too long to pull this off successfully because there are already big companies that know how to do solar and wind and are structured for that and they're much more efficient. So I hope that BP can can evolve and, and Shell and Total and other companies, I hope they can evolve into renewable companies. You know, I, I love the Energy Gang podcast and, and Jigger Shaw sometimes mentions when he's talking about the transition of these oil companies that they really should be focusing on geothermal because that's where they have the engineering expertise. You know, they're used to punching holes in the ground and they not really know how to do that. So maybe that's a good niche for them to go in that could help set them apart. But I don't think in business history, there are very many examples of companies that have reinvented themselves when an industry was dying. And there are lots of examples of companies that have not you know, Kodak is the one that, that everybody points to all the time, you know, where they actually invented one of the very first digital cameras and then they just put it on a shelf because it was going to cut down on the amount of film they were going to sell. You know, you know what happened to them. They're not really around. Yeah, I think um, it, it's interesting that if you wanted to make an analogy for how difficult it is to turn something around quickly an oil tanker is probably what you'd use to describe as a metaphor for the struggle and <laughs> yeah, time that's, needed that's to just yeah but um or i see the logic of where bp are going like they're as you mentioned like cutting oil and gas investments by 40 percent by 2030 and trying to be net zero by 2050 that ties in with what we're hearing from biden and the commitments he's making Boris Johnson's recently said the UK is going to be carbon neutral by 2050. But I can see the logic of where BP are, are trying to go and what they're trying to align themselves with. But like yourself, I think they might have missed the boat, pardon the pun. Um, so uh, we'll watch this pace as it changes probably quite rapidly in the coming couple of months and years. Yeah, and it, it would have been very easy for Exxon to do that when they first started thinking about doing it back in the 80s because they could have done it very, very gradually and they would have had no competition really and they could have worked with government to make it happen. And then maybe the second best time to do it would have been seven years ago when they were the biggest company in the U.S. and they had loads of money. I kind of hope they've waited too long. I hope the company just crumbles into ashes personally yeah. because they've 
you know, the whole climate denial thing, their efforts to create climate denial are just purely evil, in my opinion. As long as it's that transition across to whatever those renewables are going to be. And I think your point about geothermal is well made. And it's something that isn't talked about enough. Um, the UK has just decided it's going to power its entire national, at least the grid, not the whole economy, but the grid will be wind powered by, I think Boris Johnson said 2035. No, within 10 years, actually, he said. But he hasn't said where the money's coming from to do that. I would like to hear him talk further about other technologies that the likes of the UK has available to be able to support those industries, the jobs, the economy to keep it going. We know from um, some of the guests we've spoken to, there's a lot of investment out there. You've just shown it with Next Era that there are huge opportunities for growth. Like the next big global companies that we're looking at simply won't be fossil fuel companies. By 2035, if we're to trust the figures in front of us and the governments themselves, it will be these massive green renewable energy companies that are driving global economies. Uh, you know, it's worth mentioning too that um, a lot of people in the oil industry have identified more plastic production as their backup plan. I don't know, like which industry is hated more, the oil industry or the plastics industry? Yeah. Let's not forget plastic doesn't grow on trees. It literally is distilled from <laughs> Brent crude. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a fun conversation. Thanks, Matt. Absolute pleasure. If you'd like to help stop climate change, make your next car electric. And until then, avoid Exxon stations when you're filling up. As always, we would love your feedback. Let us know if you liked this format for the show by emailing david at howtostopclimatechange.com.